0: So 71. Every time I say these numbers, uh, it's just uh, crazy to me to think that we've been doing it over a year now, 71 episodes in. My name, Matthew Walt. I am proud to be on the bus today. Not feeling so good. Truth be told, I had my second vaccine shot yesterday. Got the Pfizer. Didn't sleep so well. Little achy, little tired. Good thing that we don't use the video when we drop these episodes, because I look even worse than usual, but I am now fully vaccinated and proud to be on the bus with some of my favorite people. Sad to say, Banks and Kyle are not with us today, but filling their shoes, we have some of the, the, the best people, some of our favorites. Repeat guest number, I believe three for each of them. Before I introduce them, let me start with the incomparable Sister Christine Dallas in the house. What's up, Dallas? Another day
1: in paradise here at 305. <laughs> Can't complain.
0: Excellent, excellent. I'm sure the water is nice and warm at the Venetian Aquatic Club today.
1: Always, always.
0: Excellent. And coming to us from Hotlanta, our brother Bailey in the house. That's
2: what they call it. I am here, grateful, alive, wonderfully unemployed, but happy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And coming to us from his sister's house, where he is taking care of his four-month-old niece, He does not look like he is on a lily pad in outer space this week. You may recall he did last week. (laughs) Mr. Ian Simon, what's going on, Brother Simon?
3: Great to be here with you all. I apologize for not having a a conversation (laughs) starting. (laughs) Zoom background. We'll have to talk about actually interesting things instead.
0: Uh, I mean, I was pretty intrigued by what you'd come up with the last time around. Don't, don't, don't you know? Disrespect yourself or the rest of us by right, well, by suggesting that wasn't just pure gold.
3: If you hear some keyboard clicking, I may be lining up another special, you know, something. I like the guys. Narnia
1: look. The Narnia <laughs> look was good.
3: I've got it in spades. So
1: excellent.
0: So jumping right in, we're going to start with our usual festival watch. It's been a uh, I mean, I want to say it's been a slow week because there's only been a couple of announcements, but it feels like we're back in full swing. We've heard about most of the big ones still waiting on Lala. That could be, you know, a week or two away or less. Who knows? Question mark. Not sure. But states are definitely reopening. My home state, Massachusetts, just announced August 1st. We would be back to 100% capacity across the state, although the city of Boston said they would delay for three weeks, which definitely hurts certain friends of the program, including Beth and Larry over at Fenway Park, unfortunately. But August 1, if it's true to form in the state of Illinois, means Lollapalooza might happen. So fingers crossed, I'll be seeing all of you out there. What we do know, however, is that Burning Man canceled this week, decided to go online, which begs questions for me, because Burning Man is not your typical music festival. The idea of a virtual Burning Man is not something that I, for one, can get my head around just yet. I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts on
3: that. I just I think you've done enough acid to be able to oh. understand virtual Burning Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you take oh. enough acid watching virtual Burning Man, it's really hard to distinguish from actual Burning Man. So
1: That's a valid point. I think Fair it'd be uh, definitely on the list. It's on my bucket list. I can't wait to go, but in person, not on the old screen. Burning Man's like it. its
0: own universe. I I've, I've heard from people that go and it's one of the few I feel like that I've never been to. I'm not sure that I care to. It's hot. It's, it's just, it's dusty. dusty and they separate people into like different quadrants and they have like squad leaders and things that kind of foster this kind of community, family Mad spirit. I, 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 It's Mad Max. I, I yes. picture like the, the heroin community on Mayans. <laughs> if any of you watch that program, <laughs> like, is that not what Burning Man is to me? It's gotta be something like that.
2: Yeah. Virtual Burning Man scares me that. I mean, look, I, you know, everybody is, well, not everybody. You can take drugs and stare at your laptop at any time. But Burning Man is such a, an inclusive experience that, you know, you're almost zone out after a while. You know, like you just dress up and just, you know, you start nodding. Mm-hmm. You got to move around. But, yeah, I don't want to see anything go virtual. I want to I see people feel, feel good enough to get open. Well, we do
0: know that there will be a Railbird Festival in Lexington, Kentucky the last week of August. Dave Matthews banned my morning jacket. What's curious to me about that is Lexington, Kentucky is what, 90 minutes from Bonnaroo? Just a couple of days beforehand? I mean, I guess Bonnaroo sells out no matter what. So another event in Kentucky, so be it. But seems like a lot of overlap in audience, if you ask me. I'm curious. I'm curious about all of these festivals that are essentially overlapping one another this year, just by virtue of timing. They're all packed into like a six, eight week window from late August through mid-October. And, you know, so far, most of them that we're seeing are, of course, in Midwestern states or Southwestern states and and of course Florida because fucking Florida has their three point secret project festival (laughs) it'll be over by the time we air it actually starts tomorrow we're recording on the 29th it's tomorrow the 30th we were talking to Meg Dieter about that she's there Emily May Okenden our good friend of the program also there And uh, I don't know, I mean, now that I'm fully vaccinated, I I mean, cool, but do we really want Miami to be the place where the first festivals happen? Is that really what we're looking for? Ian Simon steps up. People can't see this, but just gave us a crazy, crazy background. It does look like Narnia. He Uh, is uh, definitely a sci-fi weirdo, that Ian Simon. It's Studio
3: Ghibli. It's Hayao Miyazaki. I love it.
2: It's like the intro, like you're walking into Burning Man. I feel like I'm, I'm <laughs> there understanding. There
1: There you go. miss
2: like, it already. I need some drugs right now. Uh, do, Matthew, Teach me just how before, to do this, Ian. <laughs> before you go, I was just going to say, as someone who lives in the South, you're talking about overlapping festivals. Here in the Southern states where I live, they can't wait to do anything you will allow them to do. So if there was a way to do a festival... Every day after each other, they try. So I'm interested as well to see, you know, how this goes. Nobody's worried about, you know, not selling because of, you know, timeframes. So we'll see.
0: Well, separate from the festivals, I mean, we're starting to see a lot of large scale tours announced. We're starting to see, I mean, especially in the country world, Luke Bryan just announced a tour. Garth just came out and said that he's adding more stadium dates throughout July. I mean, we're talking 60, 80,000 people packed into a stadium for one night. That's that's even more congested arguably than some of these festival situations and it's you know not surprising again Midwest, South, Southern, Southwestern location Salt Lake City I believe was just announced. Um definitely more red leaning conservative states is what it is, but all good signs of things to come. So Hopeful, hoping everybody gets their vaccine shot soon, hoping we can get back to that semblance of normalcy. Speaking of abnormal, though, and speaking of one of those questionable, we always talk about our Olympics watch. The latest on the Olympics is now the athletes are going to be tested daily when they are there. Now, daily. I'm just curious, what do you think would happen if artists were being tested daily on the road with the tours. Are, is anybody hearing about you know, the plans for COVID on, on Luke Bryan's tour or any of these tours going out? Do you, do you think these guys are subjecting themselves? First of all, the, is the crew being tested daily? Second of all, is the artist being tested daily?
1: Valid I think similar. Question. Yeah,
2: go ahead, Christine. I don't want to. No, too. I was just
1: going to say, I think it's a really valid question. I mean, you know, we're so far away from the herd immunity that we need and hearing some of the statistics where people have just gotten one shot, not done both shots, my concern is mutants. You know, if we have mutations of this, we're going to be right back, you know, or dealing with something like what India is dealing with right now. I mean, they're a perfect example of how it can go very wrong if you jump out the box too quickly. And I think, you know, I was listening to three police officers a couple days ago in the local city I'm in, and I was really disheartened by their just unbelievable ignorance you know, out of the three of them, one had been fully inoculated, one had been half, and then the lower-ranking fellow waited till the boss walked away, and then he was like, "I'm not doing that; it's stupid." And I thought, great. Even if our police officers aren't even being taught that it's critical to the welfare of the greater good, what do we do? And I'm seeing people socially like lying about having been vaccinated or not admitting that they haven't been vaccinated, um, and now they're socializing, and I think that is absolutely wrong. And, you know, my fear is getting out there too soon. I want us to get back and be healthy and rule the music <clears> world again <throat> like we once did.
0: There it is. Well, I think that says it all. So yeah. let's just jump right in.
1: But on a positive note, let's not forget Barcelona. Barcelona okay. did that Tell test. Us about Barcelona.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's yeah. right.
1: I'm not an expert, but from the news and what we've read is, what was it, 5,000 people. They were mm-hmm. all um, tested on the way in. And they wore masks. They were inside an arena, um, in the Sao Paulo Jordi Arena, I think it is. And um, turns out, after the fallout, I guess it was six weeks ago, I think is when they did the event. And now only six people were found to have gotten COVID. It turns out four of them had walked in with it. But again, because of the way the testing is, they had tested negative and then discovered they were positive after the event. And only two people might have been contaminated in the event. So that's a great positive situation. And hopefully, you know, with the right barriers in there and everybody being inoculated, it'll make a difference.
0: Definitely will. That is definitely a positive sign. Thank you for sharing that with us, Dallas. We we just hope here in the United States, people will be so well behaved that they actually wear their masks once they're inside, that they will pull it down to drink their beer and then put it back up instead of leaving it on as a chin strap or what have you. I mean, we know how that goes. But uh, fingers crossed, appreciate the positivity. I think that's a great sign. And let's jump in with today's guest, because today's guest actually is known worldwide as, as producing some of the largest scale creative designs any of us have ever seen. Odds are, if you've been to a major event. You've seen some of his work. He's also more recently gotten involved in the virtual side of the spectrum and done some very interesting and and forward thinking work in the virtual space. So we're very happy to, to have him on the program. He's a lighting designer. He's a creative producer. That's a title we haven't actually Heard on this program seems self uh, seems obvious the implication, but we'll certainly ask him what that means. Again, haven't heard that one yet. He is the CEO and chief creative officer at Fireplay. He spent 15 years collaborating with Justin Timberlake. Works with Coldplay, Carrie Underwood, Billy Eilish, Thomas Rhett, Kylie Minogue. The list goes on and <coughs> on. And on. Very happy to have him on the program. Nick Whitehouse in the house. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, we appreciate you coming to us from the, what did we call it? The, the Northeast, Kingdom. Northeast Kingdom. <laughs> Our listeners may remember when we had Suna Ruth here on the program. She's also from this Northeast Kingdom in Vermont, Nick, as we understand, was born and raised in Leeds across the pond, but resides in the U.S. now, splitting his time between Nashville, I believe, and the... Northeast kingdom. I don't know why I keep wanting to put great
1: <laughs> Northeast kingdom. In sounds from- like a game of Thrones.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it de- well, th- I'm sure it's that the, the imagery that sooner has, uh, you know, planted <clears in> throat> <up> throat> also kind of factors into that, but it definitely sounds that way. Frankly, if you've seen pictures, it kind of looks that way in terms of the just sheer beauty and the, the lack of, uh, you know, obstructions uh, in terms of the, 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 The topography.
4: Um, It's pretty incredible out here, the the nature and the scenery. It's a great place to unwind from the craziness of, you know, entertainment and touring and thousands of people.
1: I was worried about the way you fly into.
4: (laughs) Burlington. It's an hour and a half drive. It's not fun in the snow. (laughs) Or after a long trip. Or after a long trip.
0: so Nick you got your start as an LD with a band called Star Sailor and I just want to call attention to that because their debut album Love Is Here back in what was it 2000 2001 I thought they were going to be one of the biggest bands in the world I love that record I actually went back to it a couple of days ago after reading your bio and I listened to the whole thing front to back I couldn't I couldn't turn it off I think it's a brilliant record, one track after the next. Why don't you start by telling us with your about your experience with them? And of course, out of that experience and so many, you, you did then go on to work with Coldplay, who again, became the band I thought Star Sailor was going to be. So why don't you tell us a little about your early days and the experiences you had?
4: Well, that's kind of a funny story because the record company also thought Star Sailor were the you know were the big gap band that was going to be enormous and coldplay were going to be the ones that were you know the smaller band so i was working with star sailor when the record company was putting all their money into promotion there so i got my break Um, i became their designer we did a bus and trailer tour around europe and you know every I was the only person on the lighting side so I'd be setting it up myself pulling lights out trying to figure out what was happening in anything from a bar to uh, a decent like 5000 capacity venue depending on you know how big they were in that town and I think we did four months in Europe all in one go all on the same bus I learned so much cuz you know every day you turn up and you're like oh I've just got nothing and then you have to try and make it work and Kind of came back to the UK and all of a sudden Coldplay had blown up and the record company were like, who's Star Sailor? <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I still worked with them for about six months into that. And just one of those right tame, right place things. It just so happened that I did a show with Brian Leach and Coldplay and the timing was right and he needed someone to go on tour with him and do the operate the video. Actually, we found like a media server thing and I, I ran that. And naturally transitioned into doing both because Brian didn't really want to do the road anymore. So that was kind of my start in that, that whole place. Well,
0: I hope when Kyle listens back, he plays attention to what it means to actually take off your white gloves and push (laughs) cases and set up your equipment and what have you. Kyle, Kyle likes to tell us as a front of house engineer that he's put in the work. But I mean, to my knowledge, no one that's been on this program has ever actually seen it or heard it, so and, and, and Ian is shaking his head. Ian, you, much like me, have spent many years on the road with Kyle. H- has he ever touched a road case?
3: Not to my knowledge. I mean, <laughs> maybe to kick one out of the way on his way to front of house, but I would say that. I mean, I'm one to talk. I did like, I did one and a half tours like pulling cases and, and building an LED wall, but... I used to bring that up all the time whenever someone would give me a hard time about White club. be like, listen, I know how to put together an LED wall as if I'd done it on eight tours when it was really like one six-week EDM tour in
4: small markets. But it teaches you what you like and what you don't. Right? It does. I think it's pretty important too. Like, you know, as an LD, if you don't know what goes into setting up the show, you don't really know what you're asking someone to do. So when you get to a, you know, an hour before doors and something's not working, and you're screaming at the crew chief to go up there and fix it. It's like, well, would you do that? You know, if you're in that position. So I think you learn a lot, and fixing lights and things and understanding how they work lets you use them better. So that's where I always come from.
0: I think that's excellent, that's awesome. excellent advice.
4: Awesome, awesome.
0: So so we talked in your intro about What must be a creative producer? Why don't you tell us how you define creative producer?
4: So it's an interesting title because I think a lot of people use it differently. And a lot of people call themselves a creative producer because it's kind of been a normal thing these days. But the way I see it is you're that gap, uh, or actually you're bridging that gap between the creative team and the artist and the business manager. So you're right in the middle, because you know, you we all know if you allow the business manager to make decisions that affect, you know, we know nothing ever fits in budget, so you have to cut somewhere. And if you let the business manager make that decision, they're gonna cut the thing that makes the most impact to a show. And I think if you're the <laughs> gap if you're bridging that gap between artist, creative team, and the business side of it, you can actually make the cuts in places where no one notices. So you end up De- delivering a better show for the money than you would if you didn't have that role and for me that's the most important part of that and it, it is going through the quotes with vendors working on efficiencies when you're actually trying to turn the creative into a tourable thing working with the production managers to make sure that they're happy with you know what you're delivering them and it's not something that can't fit in the venue because what's the point in it sitting in a truck the whole time and someone paying for it and you know, little simple things like, hey, if you make the shape of the stage less round and more squared or angled, it's going to save money and it's going to pack in a truck better. And it's like, well, no one will notice that. So, yeah. But if you take away five lighting trusses will make the video screen smaller, which is the easy thing to do because it's like a line item in a budget, then uh, everyone notices and the show's not as cool. So well, for me, that's come- the rule.
0: Two things come to my mind excuse me for jumping in that as you're saying this first of all you say creative producer is a common uh, title but i don't hear that very much i hear creative designer um, i see i you know we hear about show producers but a creative Usually is somebody who pays no attention to the numbers, at least in my experience, knows nothing about the budget, and you know comes up with this opulent design, and then the owner who says, "Well, what do you mean this is expensive?" Um, and and so, first of all, I just want to say I think it's remarkable that you're able to balance the creativity with budget because that actually doesn't sound so common. In my experience, and kudos for that. Uh, the other thing I would say, again, putting myself in Kyle's shoes—he's not here today. I hope when he listens back, I know what he'll be thinking. He'll be thinking, "Well, I know where they're going to cut from the budget. They're going to take it out of the audio because that's what he always—I mean, he's a front of house. Chris would say the same thing as a monitor engineer. What do you have to say to that when when you're building a design and you realize you need to cut a corner?" Are you going after the audio first? Be honest.
4: Actually, I don't think I've ever gone after the audio. Yeah. What's the most important thing you go to a show for? It's to listen, right? So it's, it's to hear the, if you can't hear the music, the visual doesn't matter because it doesn't sync with anything. So you know, at the end of the day. If this is what the the front of house guy needs and the monitor guy needs to make this the best possible thing, then this is what you get. But you better deliver as well.
0: Well, you definitely say all the right things. And I do appreciate that you threw in at the end, they better deliver. I totally agree. So let's just keep moving. I see in your bio that you, it, it says you provide services that go beyond client expectations to revolutionize production and design. That, that's a pretty heavy statement. So let's, let's jump to that. How is it that you are revolutionizing production and design?
4: Okay. So a good example, JT's future sex love show. I don't know if anyone remembers that it was an in the round show. And it was the first time we integrated a VIP section into the actual show itself. So before that, you used to get front row tickets or you used to get meet and greet or you used to get something like that. What we did is we created four bars in the stage. And if you bought a seat at one of those bars, you were part of the show. You'd interact with the dancers, Justin. You'd get a photo with him. He'd touch you like it, it was a completely new way to do it. And all of a sudden, you weren't just selling a 10 20% increase on a ticket price. You were selling seats at thousands of dollars. And ultimately, that is where like, VIP Nation came from. It became a whole industry to itself of what are these upgraded experiences? How can we integrate something completely different into a show? And honestly, it's how do we capitalize more on what we do <clears throat> and make more money for everyone? So that's one example. Yeah,
0: I think that's an amazing example. I hadn't even considered huge. that. I, I got to yeah. ask, can you give
4: us another? Because that was that's, <laughs> that's a good huge. one. I mean, we'll go back to, you know, we did a similar thing on Britney, but um, on the Britney Spears Circus Tour, it was all about performer flying and moving people around in the air. And we went to Cirque du Soleil to get advice on how to do it. And they pointed us to a bunch of companies and none of them could actually do it and tour it in a day. So everyone wanted a few days to set up. It was a big, expensive thing. There was loads of pre-rig and we didn't have the budget for it. So we kind of went with a concept of, well, what if we develop something like this? And we went to a we went to PRG actually, who had a scenic department that only did Broadway and they did a lot of the performer flying on Broadway. And I'm like, how do you do that? And between us and all the ideas we had, we developed this whole new winch system that we could actually deploy in a day. It came under the weight limit of the building. And we, had, we ended up with 14 axis of performer flying on a show and Cirque came to visit us to ask how we did it. Nice. Hmm. Good stuff. Impressive, very impressive. I like that. I always Excellent. like finding new technology or new ways to do things, which kind of comes back to the creative producer role is, how do we do something and actually make it affordable to tour and physically possible to tour?
0: I mean, it sounds like in the JT example, you figured out how to actually pay for what you designed to do, which is more than impressive. So, so let's kind of stick with the same basic theme. I read this quote in an article you did, and, and it really jumped out at me. And, and I have to ask you about it. You said, you're talking, I, you said, perhaps you're selling the best thing in the world. But unless the people who are buying it understand what it is, how it works, and how it benefits them, they're not going to stop doing things the way they always have. People are creatures of habit. So impart wisdom on us of what that means and how you sell through these visions and and really make that happen.
4: And that's the hardest thing we do, right? It's trying to change how things are being done because it's really easy to say, well, we did it like this on that. You know, as a tool. And when you try and change the way things are done, and you try and kind of say, well, there's a new way, and there's a way that we could do this and make it easier on everyone, that's when you get that resistance. And that is the hardest thing to sell. And sometimes it's like, um, you know, for example, you use a certain staging company, they're twice the price or four times the price up front. But every single time you load in, You use less crew, you use less trucks. You you don't have to pre-rig. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to um, change the building and re-engineer the building. It's all thought about up front. And actually selling that into an artist or a manager is the hardest thing we do. It's like you've got to fork out, you know, five times the money up front, but over the tour, you'll save it. And that's kind of the, you know, I don't actually know how we sell that because 50%, it's of the time it's successful. And 50% of the time they go, no, we're not going to pay for that. And then complain that they're getting all these extra costs as you're touring. And it's like, we did tell you that here's the email or here's the conversation. And oh yeah, sorry. So it's probably (laughs) the trickiest part of doing something on a big scale um, with people that have seen it done another way. And are like, well, I always do it like this. It's like,
1: okay, what made you so wise? Was it because you had great mentors coming yeah. up or interesting? And you kind of learned from their yeah, experiences? I worked so with speak? some,
4: yeah, I worked with some really great people that completely understood, you know, either the creative side, they weren't all the same people. So the creative side, I learned from a number of people. But then the business side, I, I learned from an, another couple of really incredible people that were thinking differently. You know, they were ahead of the change that we went through where, touring went from being that promotion that sold the album to actually being the multi-million dollar corporation that made all the money for the artist and they kind of pioneered that and tried to make it as efficient and streamlined as a real business would be and following that lead it's kind of like well it makes sense and i can do both because i see both things
0: i think it's uh impressive that you pay homage to to the people that have have helped you along the way. But I also see this common thread in everything you've told us so far. And and I saw it in, in a number of interviews that I read up on you in advance that you work, I, I wouldn't say hard, but you work effortlessly at effectively trying to position what you do as different. Mm-hmm. So how is it that you and Fireplay is different?
4: I think the cool thing about why and why we're different is we approach things as unique every time, you know, there's no, we started from this or we know how to do a show. This is a great shape of a stage. Like the one thing that I really like to do is listen to why we're doing that album campaign or what's important to the artist or what's important to the brand and what we're trying to say and what are the aim, what are their aims? And then really everything's unique and custom to that. And we start there. And that's what makes Fireplay different to everyone else, I think. I mean, I'm sure there are are lighting designers and there are stage designers that do that as well, but we do everything. So we can, from the concept to actually delivering opening night, we can just take care of the whole thing internally. And it saves a lot of people fighting over, well, I want this or I want that. And we just have those internal fights and figure it out and no one sees it. So. For me, that's what we do very differently. Is we always strive to be completely unique and deliver things that just haven't been seen before. If it it actively sometimes we look around to see if those ideas have been done, and if they have, we'll try and find something else because we don't like to copy. We like to try to come up with those moments that people remember. And I think that's what's been successful in what I've done and now what Fireplay does is creating those moments because people still remember them to this day, even if it's. 15, 20 years ago that we did them.
0: So, so much of what you've done has been very technical in nature too, as you're, as you're pushing, you know, in, in innovation, I'm I'm curious, what's the most technical presentation that you guys have done? And conversely, I'm curious if an artist has ever asked you to do something, you said, no, can't be done. Not going to
4: happen. Sorry. Ah, The most technical. I don't know. That's a hard one. I mean, early days would have been the you know that first cold plate tour I did. We had the first ever media servers. It was called a rad light. It was way before like Catalyst and things like that. And we saw it and it played back really crappy graphics. And my first question to the owner was, "Can we do video, live video through it?" And we developed this camera system of basically black and white security cameras that we could put on little fixed tripods and we botched together some switches and things. And the lighting console ran this whole video show for that, for that tour. And I think that was 2002 Um, and technically making that work and figuring it out, I think was the hardest, definitely the hardest at that time because it crashed all the time and Nothing, it wasn't really ready for what, it was Windows 3.1 or something that it ran onto, which was not made for video. So, you know, it it was, it was, that was pretty technical.
2: So I got a question. So being that you, I know you have the technical down, right? And you have mentors that taught you, here's how you can do this, right? Who taught you or how did you get your, your ability to deal with the artist's? Because I find that, like, you are a creative person as well. And two creative people can sometimes clash in in weird ways. And we know with artists, you know, we are beholden to that artist, right? So coming from that, when you have an artist come in, whether it be a rehearsal or just your first design when you're sitting down with them, obviously you have a million different ways you can talk to them. Like, who taught you, like, hey, just so you know, this guy's a nut. He might come in drunk, but he really knows what he likes, or whatever their thing is. Like, how did you learn how to deal with artists?
4: I don't know if I ever learned. I mean, <laughs> coming from like Leeds in the UK, I was never, I never really followed celebrity. Yeah. So I just treat everyone like a normal person. And mm. I think that helps. Like, I'm not afraid to have the conversation or be like, no, we're not going to do that. Or Perfect. explain to me why you're thinking that and let me give you some options. Like, mm. You know, I think it just comes from the, like, not being awestruck and having to say yes to everything and then not deliver. I've always been, okay, cool. Yeah, we can do that. But what if we did this? And, you know, that from my point of view, I think it was just a natural, like, not flustered by the conversation you're going to have and just be honest and kind of figure out together what you want to do.
0: Well, now, wait a second. That goes back to the second half of the question I asked right before, which you didn't actually answer. If there's ever been something an artist asked you to do and you said had to say no or you couldn't deliver
3: it.
4: I don't think I've ever said no. I think I've probably said, let me try and figure that out. Um, And there's one that I so back on that future sex tour, Justin sent me a reference of a muse performance that happened at an MTV Awards in Scandinavia somewhere and they they did this incredible performance and they were surrounded by green lasers and it was just this spider web of laser everywhere and it it just it's probably still one of the references that makes it around the world when anyone says lasers and he was like I want to do that and so I did some research and in the US you for a long time you couldn't put lasers anywhere in the audience so we did maybe three, four months of research, tried to make it happen, couldn't make it happen. So that, you know, it was like, no, we're not going to do that, but here's an option for what we did. And we did something cool. Um, and then when we came back to his 2020 tour, which was eight years later, I managed to deliver that green laser, uh, thing that he wanted. It was just like, Hey, I found a partner who knows how to do this. And, you know, they, Through their work and the way that they were set up, they managed to change the laws in the US and lobby Congress to allow us to do it. And then once we did that, we were allowed to tour it around the world. So I said no, but then followed up and made it
1: happen later. (laughs) So I have a funny question. What about those bracelets on Coldplay? I'd, I wasn't involved with that. You weren't involved. <laughs> that? No. Uh, those are nice, but I mean, that's a sh- that I think is a continuation of what we were talking about of having the audience participation. I mean, you see it a lot in the Korean pop circuit where I they think seem it's to great. have, all- yeah, they seem to have all sorts of things that they sell that light up, <laughs> do whatnot. <laughs> um, but does it also do you find like that takes away from some of the creativity from the show side, or do you think it's nice to let the audience participate?
4: I think it adds to it. I mean. Just like you said, people getting involved in the show, that's why you go to a live show, right? You go to experience the music, not just watch it. So if you've got a wristband that lights up, you're going to put your hand in the air when, when it lights up and you're getting people involved in it and they're like, hey, I had this. And I think you, sometimes you leave with them and they keep flashing and it's just like, hey, cool, I got this little thing. you know. So I think anything you can do to get closer and bring people into a show is what helps them remember the experience they've been at.
0: So we keep talking about these big, impressive technological feats and advancements and innovations. I'm curious, all of the talk in the last few weeks of the pandemic, that the, the newest hot button uh, phrase, the, the newest hot button item that everybody's talking about in touring is is sustainability. So, I'm curious what it is that you're doing from a creative perspective to take these massive, opulent, creative designs you create, you're coming up with and make them more sustainable, to reduce the environmental footprint, to reduce the power usage or what have you, the personnel on the road. What, what Tell us about that.
4: Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting conversation because I think it's been happening pre-pandemic, but no one really got into it because there was no need to. And now we're coming out of it, we're seeing that, you know, it's definitely on everyone's agenda now. So I one of the great things that we've learned over this last year is how to adapt and how to, you know, embrace technology in different ways. And people have got a lot more used to using technology to experience things. So I think as we come back, there's this hybrid world between virtual and live that we can use to extend experiences and kind of reduce the amount of physical things we need because we can extend, you know, we can extend things really crazily into, to like augmented reality or into, into just like a mixed reality type situation. And I think you pair ideas like that with, New technology that suppliers have been developing while, you know, they've basically had a down year to concentrate on R&D. They've been coming up with new light sources that are lighter and use less energy and pack smaller. So you reduce the amount of trust, people you need, truck space, things like that. I think all of that coming together is going to make these things, you know, allow us to do really creative things with less equipment, less electricity usage, and kind of, you know, less trucks going around the world.
0: Well, a company that we talk about around here, certainly I've known them for a long time. And one of the first guests on the program when we started was a gentleman named Adam Gardner, who, along with his partner, Lauren Sullivan, founded an environmental 501c3 called Reverb. And Reverb got written up in a Polestar expose uh, just last week, I believe it was. They did a big green issue. Uh, but to the point about you know talking about sustainability since pre-pandemic, Reverb's been around since 2004. It took 17 years and a pandemic for them to get an article in Polestar. So I agree that the conversation about sustainability has been going for a while now. But I got to push back a little bit and say, how quickly are we really going to be adapting these sustainable approaches to doing business? And with respect to the virtual and augmented reality options, I, of course, love that in theory. But how far off are we really from having that technology at our disposal to bring it into a show on tour? you know, in the near future where venues are set up with enough internet service, where people have sophisticated enough, you know, phones or Apple glasses or what have you, that they can actually experience this immersive virtual augmented experience the
4: way you envision? Exactly. That's a great question. I mean, I don't know, to be honest. There's a lot of research that I'm currently doing into into that. I don't I think it will take the right artist and I think it will take the right tour because it's gonna be a leap of faith. The first person to do it is definitely gonna be, you know, testing the waters and seeing if it's something that works. And in terms of changing from what the way touring was in 2019, I think there's a whole bunch of artists that are just gonna go back out and resume those tours that were designed the way they were designed mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. start back up again and go out. And I think there's going to be, you know, there's two completely different schools of thought. Some people are like, hey, everyone's just going to be excited to go back to a show. So we'll throw anything at it and they'll just turn up. And then the other side of the people is like, hey, so everyone, like the world's changed. So we need to do something different and we need to show people why they miss live events so much. And I think there's no one in the middle. It's like one way or the other. And it's going to be one of those forward thinking people that says we need to show why. Uh, people have missed live events so much that we will take this on and might set the way for people to follow.
0: Well, I, I appreciate the honesty. I think you're right. And it does take one stick in their neck out and saying, we're going to do it like this, trying something different. And uh, and And I think the technology is there. The question is, is it in the hands of
4: the people yet? And who has the creativity to do it? And I think you have to give them the reason to take the technology like look at vr it's been around for years headsets have been around for years not many people have them and there's no reason for you know that the average person there's no reason to have a vr headset right now because the content's not there have you guys tried anything in? have
3: you guys tried anything in the ar space yet i feel like there's something interesting there with an extra layer of video and i remember a couple coachellas ago even at the sahara tent they had like in between sets, a couple like well rendered, but um, not super narrative driven, like experiences that you could have uh, just on your phone within the Coachella app. And I feel like there's so many opportunities to bridge not only like a layer of of content and creative design, but also give some of that interactivity that we were talking about with the bracelets earlier, right? It's like it's a phone that potentially could be controlled by um, the artist and help the show flow. I mean, have you guys dipped into that uh, at all yet in any way you could talk about?
4: Yeah, we've played around quite a bit with that and we have some ideas, but, you know, we're going to go back to that question of how do you persuade someone to spend all the money up front because it's not cheap. Yeah. You know, it's actually very expensive to develop good AR and to figure out a way of integrating it into a show where it's very nicely done. Otherwise, you're right. It just looks it looks like a cartoon. and people are like, oh, OK, I'm done with that. So...
1: I mean, yeah, well, you can you get phone calls at festivals sometimes, Little <laughs> and bringing in that kind of content.
4: which is, Exactly. Yeah, which is the whole other thing. It's not just making it cool to the phone. It's all like, right. what's the infrastructure? How do you make this work in that environment? You know? Right. We know it's possible because you, know, you go to the Super Bowl and you can stream anything you want. So like, they've just made the effort to allow you to do that where but most arenas don't.
1: Are the it's actual, gonna, sorry, I was just going to ask though, correct. the actual fixtures themselves, when you talk about creating more greener fixtures, for lack of a better word, um, are they expensive to make from the beginning stages?
4: I don't think they're expensive to make. I think the R&D that has gone into them needs to be recouped over the first few years of them being sold. But where, you know, the concert touring lighting side has been way ahead of all of that, every other kind of technology in terms of lighting for years, because we've had LED fixtures now for, you know, 15, 18 years, they started off kind of not that great, but now we've replaced 2000 watt bulbs with 300 watt LEDs. And that's common across everything. That's concert touring, film, movies, like TV. It's getting greener and the power requirements are going way down. And actually you're getting a better, more consistent product out of it. So I think, you know, uh, the LEDs appeared ten years before household LEDs appeared, and so and car headlights and things like that. So, I do know the next technology is laser that people are developing, and that reduces the power even more and makes it even brighter. So, you know, it, it's just people understanding how to use the technology properly, governments allowing it to be used safely, and things like that. But we've seen it on the tours we did in 2018 2019 we replaced all the projectors with laser projectors and they look way better you know they have better contrast ratios and you don't have to change the lamp every
1: five shows and they probably go up a lot faster too huh
4: yeah they do so it's cool that you know i think all of that is working towards trying to make it better and more efficient but as you said it takes time and those laser projectors are not cheap
0: which begs the question, of course. With the work stoppage, will that delay production? A lot of you know houses are not sinking a whole lot of money into innovative new fixtures right now because they've spent the last fourteen months not making a dime, hemorrhaging money.
4: Yeah, it's. Uh, I think for everyone, the the crew, the creative, like anyone involved in the live industry, this last year has just been a disaster. Like. And the vendors included, you know, we've seen amazing vendors disappear, being sold, like having to sell gear just to pay their guys. It's been pretty tragic. And I don't know how they're going to approach coming back. Um, I actually think the equipment's gonna be the smallest problem we have. I think guys is gonna be the biggest problem we have. I've as we kind of talked about tours coming back, we've tried to staff two or three tours, and the people just aren't there. Wow. They're not willing to leave. The jobs that they found outside, they've got a better work-home balance. They're making just as much money. They have benefits. They're so like, I don't know if lives actually, you know, like uh, Christine said, as we don't know if we're actually gonna come back. If we open too early, it might all close down again. So why take the risk of leaving a nine to five job that's paying money only to be in September time going, oh, we open too early, we close for another year. Yikes, great.
0: We certainly hope that doesn't happen. Uh, I I do want to ask, sticking with the theme of sustainability, are you finding any resistance from artists when you talk to them about a more sustainable approach? And I'm thinking specifically about you work in country uh, with a number of different country artists, certainly Bailey, you work with Chesney. I I don't know if I, I can't speak to Chesney. I can't picture the last show I saw of his. It was probably five years ago. But so many... Country artists are still using hundreds, if not a thousand plus, like old school par like energy sucking par in their show, as opposed to more, uh, you know, contemporary, more efficient, more sustainable, um, you know, moving light fixtures. Are, are you finding that that's still the case? Is there a resistance to this conversation?
4: I don't think it's the artist. I think that might be the designer because any of the country tours we've done, we've put energy efficient lights on there. We've tried to be considerate in our design. Like, I think it's just, you know, the lights you know are kind of your toolbox. So sometimes it's just going back to those ones or you want that specific look, you know? There's no reason you can't replace an old school park and with an LED park and make it look the same. You just have to use the right vendor and spec it right. And you have to know how.
0: Yeah. It sounds like the whole we've been doing it the same way for forty years. Why would you change? But the list of reasons why we should change is growing. So let's let's talk a little more about virtual because one of the pivots that you've done since the pandemic has been the creation of of the virtual crowd.
4: Tell us a little bit about that. So it, it, the virtual crowd actually came from uh, you know a, a place of more a client coming to us asking to do something so one of our clients came to us and said i would like to do a choir uh perform in front of a client all the choir members need to be at home i would like to play in front of an led screen and be in sync with everyone live i was like okay cool so obviously you go away and you try and research everything that's out there you look at all the platforms that exist you look at all the companies that are supplying something. And none of them could do that. You know, we, we auditioned 20 different things. And latency is a, is a massive thing, as we know, because we do these Google calls and Skype calls, and you always have to do that extra gap now to allow someone to talk. So we kind of set upon a mission to figure out a way to do it in real time. And we went through a couple of different companies, and then um, we, deve- we wanted to develop it ourselves. And as we got through the process of making the choir work, we were like, well, what if we could do real-time audiences to these virtual shows and started developing that idea too? And weirdly, the choir thing went away. And the audience need came in, and we started seeing sporting teams saying, How do we do a virtual crowd? So, you know, we spent some time talking to the leagues and saying, well, we could do this and do that. Ultimately, they went with different people, and they never, no one really figured out the latency side. And then we you know, we found a partner who was actually doing it really well, and they fit the music industry as Claire Brothers, you know, they, de- they were really good at technology, and they developed a pipeline that their back-end uh, virtual live audience system does, uh, has a latency of like under 0.2 of a second, like anywhere in the world. It's crazy. It's like talking to a person as though they're there. And we managed to integrate that into the process that we were doing to make it look amazing and give all this flexibility and design. And because of the way that the, you know, our programmer, uh, Andreanne and worked it all out and made it work, we're doing this whole stupid creative thing that works for anything. And it's like having someone right there live next to you. So it was kind of by accident, we started creating it and then we thought, well, actually this is a need and I, and weirdly, most of the things we're doing right now are corporate meetings where they used to fly 500 people to a location and do a big conference. And now we're doing it, you know, now we're doing it virtually. And one of the CEOs we did it for who was super skeptical and said, yeah, we're going to do this, but as soon as we can get back to real life, we're going to do that, came up afterwards and was just like, actually, that was perfect. We should always do this. Wow. Which I think is cool. And I know a lot of the,
3: a lot of the virtual production solutions and a lot of the virtual live streams, um, one of the drawbacks, especially for the performer, was being either in front of a green screen or being in a kind of clinical studio with no sort of real-time feedback. It was one of the hardest things. I mean, especially like, I remember seeing EDM shows and DJs, especially there was that disconnect because it's such about crowd feedback and the idea of like jumping up and down in a room with three people 40 feet away with you from you with masks on is so like intangible and really... I mean, sometimes it was a cool, different experience, but it really didn't replicate what it was right. like to have that real-time feedback. But CrowdPlay um, kind of solved for that a bit, right? With with having a little
4: more of a room feel. Yeah, and th- there's, there's actually, there's two things that do that. Like, one of the artists we work with described the last live stream they did was what, someone watching my dress rehearsal because there was no adrenaline. Like, you know, they didn't, and that's what makes, you know, that's they were like, that's what takes me from 80% to 100% right. of who I am. And so when we do the virtual crowd thing, it has to be live, live, too. So a lot of the live streams we watch that are called live streams are actually pre-recorded, edited, and just put out at a different date. So with virtual crowd, you have no choice but to do it live. So we did a cool test case one at the beginning of the year to to try and show it was really easy to do with an artist called Lindsay L. And... We, you know, it, it was for, we, we actually did it to try and put people back to work, raise some money for a couple of charities, and she was gracious enough to promote all that stuff, which was awesome. Um, but we got to, you know, it was eight o'clock showtime, it was 30 minutes before, and for the first time in a year, everyone was just like, holy shit, I'm nervous, what if it goes wrong? <laughs> <laughs> because all the other stuff we've been doing, if it goes wrong, you just re-record it. And like here, it was like, oh, it's live, live. And in the first song, one of the packs failed on the musicians. So the audio guys are running around everywhere. And they're just afterwards, everyone came back and they were like, that's the closest we've been to a live show in a year. And I think also for the performer, they were like, me too. I was like, I was nervous. If it fucked up, what was I going to do? Like, And then they were getting the instant feedback of people cheering between songs and shouting out and things because they hear and it I- all in their ears.
3: I think there's something freeing about that too, right? Like when you're when you're live, live, you gotta just keep going. Yep. Like there's if a pack falls, you just like and there it is an adrenaline, a function of adrenaline. Um, but it's a different kind of pressure too, because I know that when you're when you can when you have the capacity to take a take three times, there's this kind of perfection that you seek for as if you're you yep. need to have it perfectly out of the box as opposed to a live performance, which is sometimes messy. But
4: yeah, and I think. That's what makes it cool is you, you know, you are seeing a live performance live and you can feed back into it. And one of the great things that came out of Virtual Crowd, and it was one of the things that, um, you know, we did a show with Metallica where they did it and they kind of, the first two songs, you can see them a little scared because they were surrounded by 500 of their fans that kept rotating through and they're like, oh my, it's like everyone's watching us. And then they managed to get one-on-one interaction with the fans that they could never do at a show. So, they were picking people off the wall going, Hey, I want to talk to Hans in Germany. And he'd blow up really big and they'd have this conversation. And the fans' feedback was amazing too. So, it's like, I've bought VIP Metallica my entire life. And now they called me out. I want to do this again. When can we do it again? So, I think it was a, we gave something different in a bad situation that made everyone actually want to do it. So, you know, for me, I don't think the virtual crowd thing, I don't think the virtual events are going away even as we come back to live. They'll never replace replace going back to a live show, and they shouldn't, but I think they're a new tool that people can use to promote the live show or promote new music or kind of do cool fan club things you know and and get closer to their fans so it's you know we learned a lot
3: I had one more nerdy question just about solving for the latency side of things is it a lowest common denominator kind of thing where you go with with the in real time looking at the the sort of lowest latency from from some of the crowd and try to match that or do you bring everyone's speed down to a consistent level is there, is there anything you can talk about on the tech side for yourself no, for that
4: it's it's actually more distributed so you get everyone as fast as you get you know obviously you can't fix someone that's got like 2g on their phone and they're coming right. calling in for an iphone going through a tunnel so you know i, I think we'd say that 90 percent or to 95 of the people are completely in sync in almost real time. And mm-hmm. as those people catch up, they catch back up to it. Mm-hmm. But um to be honest, we've we've not really as we've done quite a few events with it, we've not had anyone that that's not been really well in sync. And there's a whole moderator side to it too, that, you know, we can test people's connections, we can see people who have a bad connection and the moderator can go on one to one with them and help them get it better. If, you know, the ones that have great mic connections and headsets that won't feed back, light up green so the artist knows who the best people are to talk to. Like, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into that system that, that makes it a good user experience and makes it great for the artist too. So you don't have those awkward, oh, I can't hear you. Oh, your mic's not on right. mute. Like, right. All that's taken care of in the back end. And you'd also don't get the people that you don't want on the screen like getting naked or holding up signs. So you've got like a dashboard sort of about. out of view of
3: the, of the end user experience and the end user yeah, experience. And it's
4: all remote too. And, and the cool thing about that is, you know, you have, um, it depends on the event. So TV events have more moderators to people because obviously you don't want brands or Coca-Cola cans or something on a screen in a studio to so live events have a few less. But all the guys that are moderating this are out of work, audio guys and lighting guys that would have been on the road. So they sit at home, they log into their computer and they get paid. So then what's the
0: next step? What's the next thing with the virtual crowd? I mean, where does that technology go? And does that get combined into the live show experience
4: on the road? What's the future hold? I think so. And I'm working on some ideas for that right now. So I I definitely think there's an application. Uh, It's the same as we've been talking about, you know, bandwidth in in arenas and stadiums is going to be a thing. And then also making it worthwhile for someone to want to do that. So I think there's a lot of steps we have to work through to figure out what that product is, but I do see it playing a part. Okay. I mean, the, the simple one that we can talk about right now is you could do a virtual meet and greet. You know, How comfortable yeah. are people going to be to be That's that close to a whole bunch that. of people? But mm. on Metallica, we did meet and greets where people would be put in the middle of them, they'd have a pro photo taken, it would be sent to them. Like it was actually pretty good. Wow, that's a great idea. Like that, you know, we, what we don't want to do is say, "Hey, this replaces life," because it's right. not going to replace that. We all know there's nothing, nothing replaces standing there, watching someone on stage, feeling the air move, you know, feeling the the lights hit you. You, we've seen virtual can never get close to that. Even virtual reality, all of that kind of thing, you just have to be there. And I think that what's going to be the cool thing is how to make it fit in so it doesn't feel like we're forcing it or it's taking away from that live experience but adding to it
3: there were a fair few of like virtual concert experiences and um, different approaches to live streaming that popped up over the course of the pandemic kind of with different use cases and i think different pros and cons but were there any that stood out to you any that you saw um that maybe you thought were either creatively interesting or, or technically interesting, and you could see down the line interfacing with, with real-world performances?
4: I, I don't think there was any that would interface with real-world. There were some really great ones, like AJR was good. You know, Dua Lipa was really good. Uh, the Billie Eilish one, if you wanted to see what XR could do, was fantastic, you know? And they're the, they're the kind of ones for me that stood out, and the ones that kind of were like, okay, if you're going to do it, this is how you do it. Obviously, you know, Katy Perry did that incredible uh, idol thing. And so, you know, I think there's been a lot of development really fast in that technology, which again is more tools to use as we move forwards to do different things. Like I, you know, if we hadn't had the pandemic, we still wouldn't really know what XR is and people would still be just using it in movies to do car chases and things. And now it's, it opens up, you know, a whole host of things for music videos, for like performances on late night shows and things like that. It's like everyone's discovered this whole new way to do really cool things and it has its place you know i don't think it is the answer to everything but it it, you know it's like all the other tools we use in live everything has its place for what we're trying to use it for right you know you use this piece of equipment for this song because that's what it's for so i mean for me I, i i like the virtual stuff i got bored after a little bit even you know it's like watching a TV show, right? There's a reason MTV doesn't show live music all the time. It's because it doesn't get ratings. You're not going to fix that.
1: No, I think kind of along the lines of what you're saying, it's just like a hug. You know, everybody needs a hug every once in a while. And <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's part of the, the real experience. But I think one question I was going to ask you is what, how would you, I mean, one of the greatest enjoyments of the pandemic was your posts on facebook i know that sounds so cheesy but you know when times where i was just like oh god this is hell and you know just kind of sitting there in misery you would post something about a show and it was just that that basic uh, instinctual primitive um thing that you were able to touch into of the experiences that you had but i found it so uplifting and i know many other people did because i saw them you know liking it and i just how were you able to find that in you um in the despair that I think we were all feeling.
4: Uh you know what was great about where I was we had I had this little team that constantly worked on this virtual stuff so I was busy. And what I wanted to do also was how do we help people because you know a lot of my friends were in very bad situations and didn't know what to do and I would you know I I made an effort to get in touch with the Save Lives Now event Campaign the we make events thing, and it's just like, what can I do? And they're like trying to help raise awareness, and I'm like, I have tons of pictures. I'll post them with funny stories and see if that helps. Because we did realize really quickly that no one understands what we do. Like it means Absolutely. we actually did our job. Great, because people just think Absolutely. an artist turns up on a bus and walks onto a stage and they play a show. They have no idea what goes into moving one of those things around the world, and you know, just how many people it really takes to make one of those things amazing. And I agree with you. That was and they still don't, honestly, no matter how much stuff we put out there. <laughs> and know, it's okay. They they really just don't understand and like even my mom doesn't really know what I do. And she's been to a ton of shows and seen what I do, but I think it's hard to explain to anyone that this is a career and you know it's an it's a long hard career path to get to where you you are in it and there's a lot of work every day to maintain it and to put on some of those incredible shows that we do it's 2 300 people working 18 hour days without stopping that love what they do otherwise what's the reason to do it and without all of them it wouldn't happen like it is truly a team that needs to make that happen and i know we've worked on some crazy shows there that like sometimes it, you don't think it's going to happen until the artist walks on stage and that's and for the day off, you don't see anyone because they're all broken. But at the <laughs> end of the day, it's a big family. Everyone loves what they do. And, you know, posting those things was, they don't usually take photos. Like, you know, trying to look back at, do you have any photos of crew working to show what they do? I was like, no, I don't take pictures of that. But I have pictures of shows and can remind people of some of the stupid things we tried to do. And and I think it did help people because... Um, The feedback I got is a lot of people had forgotten why they did what they did and what it was about it. And it was kind of like, you know, why they felt this was the career for them, because they were just like giving up hope almost. And then seeing stuff and remembering those stupid stories like, you know, someone losing a toe because we did a water show in Scandinavia at minus 30. It's, it's just like, oh, I remember that. That was cool. Oh, that tour was incredible. And, and, you know, you start a conversation and the pictures and the, the social thing would turn into a few Zoom calls with that crew on a on a Zoom call, having a few drinks and ha- shooting the shit. And I think that really helped everyone It helped me for sure. You know, it was like, that oh, we don't talk to people unless we meet them on tour. And it kind of created an excuse to be like, hey, we should just, you know, Zoom in this person. We should talk to them. And you find them and they're like, you know, they send you a message the next day going, I'd forgotten how much I miss talking to people. So I think it was cool. And it was the little bit I could do because, you know, obviously I have tons of pictures and stupid stories. So I could just talk about them. I didn't know people would like them as much as they kind of did.
1: Yeah, I found it very inspirational. I thought it was wonderful. And, you know, because just like you say, we've spent so many years hiding what we do. You know, it's been a secret. And I think this has been a real eye-opener Um mm-hmm you know, I mean, I made a joke the other day, I went to go do my taxes with a, you know, someone I didn't know, because I couldn't afford the other accountants that I'm used to paying for. And my God, she at one point, she was like, so is that waste management that you're in? And I'm like, yeah, it might as well be at this point. You know, you you just find yourself, nobody does understand. And even, um, and you miss, I mean, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast is how it's kept us alive, because every week, we've got another fabulous person talking about their pathway and their career and um, it, you know we're just even speaking the same language where you know i find myself saying copy all the time and people are like what yeah. <laughs> i'm just like oh whatever uh yes yes it, that's what you. yes you kind
4: of tend to forget how many incredible people there are in this industry like brilliant that, no, brilliant minds no one's an average person like not even you know from the, the the youngest person on the bus to to the end of it there's a reason they've got into this industry and And everyone in it's unique and cool to talk to. So I think that's what we miss the most, isn't it? It's just like, and I think that's cool. What you guys are doing is, is keeping that going that people can hear it and just remember why they want to get back on that boat.
1: Absolutely.
0: On that note, Nick, we appreciate your thoughts. We appreciate your perspective. You you hit the nail on the head. We come here, hop on the bus every week, talk to our people, reconnect. We celebrate the working class heroes, as we like to say. That is who we are. That is who we represent. That is who we speak to. We appreciate you joining us. Before we let you go, we always do a series of quick hits I think we already answered the first question, which is your first tour. It was Star Sailor, correct? Sorry, say that again? Your first tour. Star Sailor. Yes. Is there a favorite moment you'd like to
4: tell us? From anything?
0: Not the favorite, like you need to come up with the one, just a favorite moment.
4: The bridge from Justin's 2020 tour. When it first moved down the arena... It drove down the aisle. No one was expecting it. And the entire audience, instead of going crazy, just had their mouth open, staring. And I was like, oh, I think we overachieved. You know, it's like (laughs) we were supposed to make it the most exciting moment and people were just like gobsmacked.
0: Okay. If there's one thing about the industry you'd like to see us doing better moving forward,
4: what is it? Looking after our people.
0: Number one answer on the board. That's it. Appreciate that. We'll get you out on a softball. Any shout outs for us today?
4: I mean, yes, to the incredible people at Fireplay that, you know, have helped through this pandemic and developed this technology. Kim, Brian and Russ, you know, those guys work hours endlessly you know sometimes i push them really hard because i'm like i can see an idea here and they're like there's no way this will happen and they work their ass off and it happens so those guys were awesome they're a great team to be part of
0: dallas any shout outs from you
1: you know we lost another great production manager last week richard young so i want to give a big shout out to him because a lot of us had the pleasure of working with him over the years And it's going to be a big miss not having him out there. So um, we'll miss him. And other than that, I just hope we don't miss any more because we've lost a lot over this past year and few months. And I'm ready for us to all get back on the road and see each other and give each other a big old hug and get on with it and make some noise, you know. All right, there it is. Bailey, from you.
2: Uh, shout out to all of our colleagues who will be starting some of these smaller tours and doing some of these shows because the reality of it is, you know, they're they're in a testing phase as well. And I want it to go well. I want it. I really, really want it to go well. I can complain about everything, but I promise you, I, I want I want it to do well. I, I want things to. Our normal has changed, so I don't use the get back to normal. But I, I want the new normal to make a lot of sense. So hey, more power to them. I'm pulling for them. So
3: that's for all of our colleagues. Very
0: nice. Brother Simon.
3: Um, yeah, I sh- I shout out that group of people Nick was talking about earlier that maybe found something during the pandemic that was stable and now in the position wondering whether they're going to go back on the road and having to make that choice. I don't think we should underestimate how complicated a position that is, especially because there's a passion associated with going back on the road that's hard to resist. But if you have stability and you've got people to provide for, it's not the easiest choice in the world to make. So. Um, yeah, I don't want to underestimate how, how complicated that decision is and sort of knowing when to make that plunge and get back into it and knowing the longevity of it. Um, I wish those people, uh, peace of mind and, uh, hope to see them out there, but also understand if, if they've got what they're going and see them on a zoom or something.
0: Well, I love everyone's shout out today. Mine, I said the same thing before my first vaccine shot three weeks ago. I'll say the same thing today. My shout out goes to all the people out there who are administering the vaccine shots, who are taking the time to get everyone inoculated without them the process would take that much longer. We appreciate them putting themselves out there. We appreciate the long hours that they are pulling. So to the pharmacists who take care of me yesterday, thank you. To all of you out there, we appreciate your efforts sooner we get vaccinated, the sooner we get back on the road, it's really as simple as that. So on that note, thank you to our audience. Thank you to Nick. Thank you to Ian to Bailey to Dallas, to tech support. to Chris and Kyle who aren't with us today to everyone. We appreciate you. On that note, thank you all. Good night.
2: Hey, this is tech support. Want to make sure you never miss the newest from Hustle Like You Broke? Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Podcast, and sign up for our mailing list by going to hustlelikeyoubroke.com slash join. You'll get updates about new episodes, bonus content, exclusive offers, and information on how to become a part of the music industry.
1: Thanks for listening.